Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and the Battle and Action miniseries continues, or rather reaches its conclusion, with my guest, the returning guest, the writer of Diamond Dogs in the magazine at the moment, also the writer of Skip Tracer for The Prog, a filmmaker, a writer for Doctor Who comics, DC comics, and much, much more. Uh, third time in the book club for James Peaty. James, welcome back. Glad to be back. Oh, it's a delight. We were just talking about the uh, the challenges of January 22 and uh, uh, a new year, <laughs> new challenges for us all. Yes. Well, who knows? Yeah, exactly. So as I said, we've done this sort of battle action miniseries with Johnny Red, Hellman of Hammerforce, and now today's book. Tell us what you've uh, what you suggested we talk about. Well, we've chosen, or I suggested, John Wagner and Mike Weston's HMS Nightshade, which is a, a rare naval story from the annals of battle, which is, a, I think, a bit of a, an underappreciated classic. I know I'm not alone in thinking that. So, yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the book that, that, that we've chosen to cover, and it's, I think you, we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> We have, yes. So, from the pages of Battle, starting in issue 200 in 1979, ran for about a year. We'll talk about the ending a bit later on. As you said, John Wagner, Mike Weston, edited by Dave Hunt. Um, I suspect we've probably both got a Battle Classics hardback from Titan in 2014. There it is. Garth Ennis Presents, yes, with introductions by Garth Ennis. Uh, includes a couple of other shorter stories, but if the main one in this volume is HMS Nightshade. I'm going to sort of tip my hat straight away and say this is an absolutely cracking story, which I wasn't familiar with at all. Um, mm. Is it is part of the reason for choosing it? Was it that sort of relative obscurity in the other battle titles? Do you know what? I'm not sure it was. I mean, I think... I mean, it is. It is obscure in comparison to the obvious, you know, ones: Darkest Mob, Charlie's War, obviously, and Johnny Red. Um, what's the other one? You know, Helmet of Hammer. Helmet of Hammer Force from Action. Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't kind of. It's not one of those titles that sort of when people mention battle, that's the kind of headline title. But I remember reading it when it was reprinted in the mid eighties as a. Uh, so I would have. I think it was reprinted in eighty five. Yeah. So when it was the sort of tail end of that battle and it was like battle action force. And obviously I was, me and my bro- younger brother were, we bought those plastic figures. <laughs> so we bought the comic, um, not knowing that it was the comic that it was, or was more to the point, the comic that it had been. And at that point, <clears throat> they were reprinting an enormous amount of stuff from the back catalogue because obviously it was much cheaper than the, the toy tie-ins. The interesting thing... One of the reasons why I chose it is that of the stories that I read at that time, I can remember nothing really about the Action Force comics that I read at that point. But all I, what I do remember are reading Johnny Red, Charlie's War, and particularly this book, particularly HMS Nightshade. So I think it ran in 85, 86. So it's kind of pivotal time, I guess, that you're reading it when you're 10. And also the other thing was my granddad was in the Navy. Oh, so, right. In World War Two, so my granddad was uh, was on the Russian convoys that are covered in the book. So he was in the navy from I think 
40, 41, all the way through to the end. I think he was demobbed in either late 45, early 46. And he was, um, so we would kind of talk about the book. Oh, right. <laughs> and I would ask him questions from the, from the stuff. And a lot of the details that are in the book would very much kind of tie up with what he would, sort of little nuggets that he would drop. And obviously the book is kind of, it's about a grandfather talking to a grandson. And, and, and I have to say, when I reread it, like last year, which is when I suggested it to you, that was the thing that really struck me. I mean, it, that completely passed me by as a 10-year-old kid, that you're kind of engaged in the process with your own grandfather as you're reading the story. But I'd never forgotten it. It was one of those strips. There's, there's, there's bits from it that are kind of embedded in my memory. And I was away on holiday. I think it was about 2015. We st stayed overnight in Bedford for some reason. We had to kill some time before we went off to Centre Parks, as you do. We had to dr drive back. So we had to kill some time. So we went to a local library and there was, um, my daughter wanted to look at some books. She was tiny at the time. And I went off into the graphic novel section because they're quite a big one. And I saw this collection. And there were all the kind of, I had no idea that they'd done the kind of Ennis Presents Battle Classic strips. And I kind of remembered the strips that were being collected. And I saw the book of Nightshade and I read the introduction in the shop and I'd never heard it mentioned, you know, in, you know, in whispers, you know, when they talk about John's work or that of the, of battle, you know, it, as a, as a kind of great strip. But I remember reading Garth's thing and it chiming and saying, yeah, this is, you know, cause he says, I think in the introduction, this, this has got to, this might be John's classic. And so that kind of got me thinking about it, actually. I had, didn't reread it at that point then. It was like, oh, right, okay, that must have a look at that again at some point. And then during the lockdown, I just kind of, you know, you're a bit bored looking for things to, to read. I thought, why don't I get that on eBay? Right. <laughs> and I did. So that was it. I mean, so that's why. I mean, I, I read it in the second run, and it made a huge impression. It's not really one that's ever kind of come back up round apart from this reprint. I don't know how well they did when they were reprinted, but it's quite a while ago these, these came out, didn't they? Five, six years now, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years, yeah. So, so I, yeah, I mean, I just understood it. But when I did go back and reread it last year, I was really kind of blown away by it, really, which is why I suggested it, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, there's the framing device of the grandfather telling uh, the stories to his grandson, which is obviously very close to you as well and your experience. Mm. But just give us a little pricey about, about HMS Nightshade. What is, the, uh, what is the story about? Well, it follows the, I guess, the adventures of a, of a corvette, doesn't it, during World War II and HMS, uh, Majesty's Navy, um, I don't know, his Majesty's, wasn't it? In the war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, Corvette during World War II. It's a K-70 Corvette, so it's a small little boat, not a glamorous boat. My granddad was actually on a minesweeper and a destroyer, so he, was, uh, <laughs> he wasn't on one of these. And it followed, so they're kind of a bit of a ragtag. I'm guessing that's the typical kind of British war comic thing. They're, the, they're not quite at the top of the food chain, are they? They're the kind of little thing that's going around the edge of the big action. So it's... And it follows that crew from 1941 through to 1944, basically. Kind of roughly starts around the time of Dunkirk, doesn't it? Yes. Kind of ends around the time that the Europe war in Europe is drawing to a close. It follows, and it follows that that crew, and it follows, well, there were a Geordie Dunn, who's the main character, who's the grandfather in the present day, who's telling the story to his grandson and his mates, Smithy, Jock, Big Stan, Handsome John, isn't it? I think is the other one. It's like 
and there's loads of other characters as well, but they're the kind of main characters that follow that we follow through over this, you know, it's a year I think it ran for, and it's it covers three and a bit years, three and a half years, something like that of the war. So it's not really a it's not a plot driven story, is it? I think it's a, it's very much a premise driven story, I'd say, and a character driven story. Not like I mean, I guess Darkies Mob's a bit like that, but it's more that Darkies Mob feels more plot driven. And, and there's a clear, yeah, yeah. There's a central mystery in Darkies Mob, and yeah, yeah. you know, this is more about. To me, it seemed like you. It seemed to be about the characters, the below decks characters, these ordinary blokes, having to put up with extraordinary circumstances and extraordinary conditions. Um, yeah, we'll just mention a, a little bit about battle because Garth Ennis has said, you know, without battle there wouldn't be action. Without action, there wouldn't be 2000 AD. Um, obviously started by Pat Mills, John Wagner and Jerry Finley Day, 1975. And you spoke to John a little bit about the creation of the comic itself and about some of the efforts that went in at the start. Yeah. Do you want us to read those out? Uh... Well, just, just I'm fascinated that John was care or, you know, was he caretaking a mansion in Scotland when he got the call to come back down and help out uh, IPC? I think he'd been caretaking a mansion. I think he got fired. Because <laughs> I think he was also working on a dredger at the same time, wasn't he? If there's a, there's a long interview he did with um, Mike Mulcher on the Thrillcast from right. about five, six years ago. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Yes, I have, yes. But he talks about this. I think he said that someone stole like tiles from the roof of the mansion he was meant to be caretaking. caretaking. Yeah, he basically quit comics, didn't he? At this point, yes, he'd, he'd come down to IPC with with um, Pat and had worked on Sandy and comics like that, and had got pissed off and quit and gone up to Scotland and done that for I guess about a year, and then got a telegram roughly at the time that his other <laughs> work situations were drawing to a conclusion by the sounds of it, um, to come back down to London to work on IPC with Pat on creating battle. Hmm. So yeah, he comes back to sort of uh, London for his second time. And a more successful trip to London, I think we would say this time yes. around. Um, But yeah, no, he was doing this bizarre, you know, caretaking and, Working as a dre- on a dredger, you know, it's, um, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable. You kind of wonder how much of that feeds into what he would write as well. I, I wonder about that. Yes. And, of course, they put Dave Hunt actually in charge of Battle as editor. And he'd, I think, teamed up John and Mike Weston for Darkie's Mob, which had obviously been a, a hit. So he puts them back together again for HMS Nightshade. And um, I know we've both read, I think, comments from John and Garth Ennis uh, and I think from Dave Hunt that uh, naval stories were notoriously unpopular, let's say. They didn't top the the, the readers' votes um, in war comics. Well, I think, I think it's not even that they were unpopular, although they had been. I don't think they'd creatively been very successful. I think that was the other thing. I mean, we're still in that era, I think, of... Um, they're very plot-driven, aren't they? I mean, and I think in a way, if you look at all the way war comics had been up to that point, the naval story is kind of anathema to the type of st- structure. You know, Darkies Mob and Charlie's War are kind of classics in that sense, aren't they? And Johnny Red as well. They've got, you've got a very clearly defined central character who is... I guess Charlie's War, not, that's not true, he's not other. His kind of ordinariness is what makes him the most kind of the, the point of identification. But in Johnny Red and Darkies Mob, you've got 
a very strong central character, haven't you? A very defined central character. Whereas how do you do that on a boat? Yeah. It's it's interesting as well. Isn't it? I think also it's, it, the Navy is very much the kind of microcosm of British society. So you're appro- approaching it from a very different point of view. The kind of classic, uh, the classic, the classic war story is kind of, you know, in a way feels very individualistic, quite American. I think there's a lot of that influence in British war comics after the film. I know we talk about British war films as well, but I still think there's a strong, certainly in those early kind of battle strips, there's a very strong American kind of feel to them, I would say. I think um, that's the difference. I would say that's the difference. I think, but the character-led approach is something I think makes HMS Nightshade work. They take the virtues of what, of a, of a naval story and actually kind of sort of drill down into that and make that the kind of, the USP, even though Nature was never really a very popular strip. No, and when we talk about the ending, and you know, we know that after a, about a year, it wasn't doing very well, and they decided to end it. But John's writing, you know, um, as you say, it's remarkable character work. We have these great below decks characters, ordinary blokes. Um, the four central ones, plus a few, as you say, there's some other named characters, all of whom have got sort of memorable characteristics. It is also, it's that, it's that battle um, comics thing, which is it's the sort of working class uh, story of the war and the navy. The officers are rather sort of distant and enigmatic characters who not really go into as much as uh, as the, the the ordinary chaps you know geordie and smithy and stan and so on well and also in this story as well the enemy is kind of almost absent yes we, we see the odd kind of like shot of maybe a u-boat captain or a, a u-boat pushing up but they're, they're kind of not in the book at all you know you see some obviously the soviets are kind of the ally, sort of allies by that by the time they get on they're on the kind of convoys later on you see them but even then they're not in it very much it really does focus down on on the on the boat i've always wondered as well how much of this i mean cuz when we talk about battle you also have to talk about like dc thompson as well and obviously john and pat came from dc thompson originally dc thompson had cornered the market in war stories um of a very particular type they're very well constructed they're very but they're very kind of they're very classic in their sense i mean i think the thing that's interesting when you compare the two companies ipc has a very strong unionized workforce i've always wondered how much that plays into the the gives the ipc stuff it's much more of its character and flavor and i don't just mean in in terms of battle but also if you go further into kind of 2000 ad as well that there's an element of that kind of agitation (laughs) towards authority um, that obviously is not in those DC Thompson comics at all. And I think in some respects, you know, the the, the kind of unit, the the idea of the unit, they're like a workforce. That's the thing that strikes me about this is that they're a kind of, they could be working in a factory rather than on a boat. And it feels very much that was the war for a lot of people. And certainly in the, the I think the naval experience obviously is very, very different to the the army because you are that locked up with these people. (laughs) Yes. You are living with them. And that was the stories my grandfather would tell me. That's what resonates the, the truest. And my grandfather, after the war, became a, he was a union shop steward down at Brighton and May's factory in the East End. And so I think when I would talk to him, in his mind, the way he would talk about things, the Navy and the union were very closely interlinked. 
So I think there's a strong element of that within within this as well, um, which is makes it different. And you mentioned that sort of slightly Americanized war hero type comic, uh, where you get often you get the central figure, the commanding figure who leads them or either acts solely or leads a group into doing heroic and desperate things. Whereas this, it's as you say, it's more like a factory at sea. It's more like a group of people mm. who've just got to keep this boat going mm. and things go wrong, things break, doors jam, guns get frozen, um, you know, some some another ship rips a great hole in a piece of steel plating or something like that. They have to fix a leak. And it just feels like, again, as I keep saying, it's these blokes who are just having to, you know, keep this thing going. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I don't know how they manage it so much, but it really feels like you're almost there with them in the frozen Atlantic guarding a convoy. Um, in yeah. these terrible conditions, um, so yeah, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. This 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 idea of a sort of factory afloat um, and the unionised blokes just trying to keep it going and just having to fix yeah, things yeah. as it goes along. It's remarkable. Yeah, no, it's it's just, it's phenomenal, and it is. Re- I think this is what gives it its real kind of um, what makes it distinctive. I think as well uh, now when we look at it, is it looks so much more sophisticated as a piece of writing. As a, as a as a piece of story construction as well uh, than maybe some of the other strips. I mean, it, without a shadow of a doubt, this is my favourite of all the battle stuff. Darkies Mob, which I think is great as well. You know, Charlie's War, which is its own phenomenal thing. Um, but this is the one I think for me that, and I think there's something poetic about it as well. That that's the thing about framing it in the way that it's framed. You know, with a grandfather and a child, who, as we discover throughout the the book, and particularly when we get to the end, it's very that child is very close to, to not being born. Yeah, <laughs> there's a kind of there's a fragility to that. I think there's a fragility to the story as well, which is very uh, powerful. It's it's the opposite of macho. Yes, yes, and there's interesting. I mean, without giving away too many spoilers, there's going to be attrition amongst the crew, and then some of the other supporting characters. Uh, will um, come and go. Uh, so we get some terrific moments there. We also get the occasional moments of them ashore um, with their families, yeah, yeah. and we get a little bit more detail about their backstories and their families, all of which is very poignant and touching and remarkable stuff as well, isn't it? Well, it's, so, it's beautifully done, and so it's done so delicately. It's drawn with so little kind of extraneous verbiage and you know it's not overdone it's just you know there's the story one of the characters marries doesn't he when he's in the dock at liverpool they go ashore at liverpool and he meets some a girl and gets married and then that story kind of plays out over a number of a, a stretch and that character is sort of forever changed isn't he as a result of, of that experience and that's the thing that I think is it, there's there's an enormous consistency of character as well, and of character development, which you don't really see in these types of stories. Maybe Charlie's War is a, is, a, is an exception in that, and maybe that's a, to undersell. I don't know Johnny Red and those other kind of things, but their character rather than their character changes that feel kind of human and relatable, rather than that, that are driven by the kind of necessities of the plot. Yeah. You know, that's I think that's the that's the that's the thing I kind of the take that sort of is 
the strongest on this. I did a little timeline before this because I'm boring, you know, and, uh, you know, I've got that sort of mind. And I was looking at the strips that he'd worked on and created up to the point he did HMS Nightshade. And I think HMS Nightshade is the last solo John Wagner strip before he starts working with Alan Grant. Oh, uh, right. Okay. So it's kind of in, so if you if you look at it, one eyed Jacks or seventy five, seventy six, you see Darkies Mob. You can see a kind of a, a, an inheritance from that into Darkies Mob, I think, um, and an evolution. Then Dread, obviously, and then it's Johnny Alpha and Robo Hunter, sort of in seventy eight. And I think you can see the character stuff becoming even more prominent through all of that stuff. I mean, Johnny, you know, one eyed Jacks very much a he's very much a I would I would say he's a, a two dimensional character, but that may be to give him an extra dimension. <laughs> As much as I love that strip, and I think it's great, but it's, it, I think it develops over time quite quite interestingly. And then is then parked, maybe, when they start writing together. Yeah. And then comes back later in the 80s when that partnership breaks up towards end. the end of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think Garth Ennis says in his introduction to this story, this is not a tale about a sort of, you know, future lawman or a uh, space western bounty hunter. This is... This is the story about ordinary people um, doing stuff that actually happened. And as you say, right at the start, perhaps not an awful lot of plot in a way. The enemy is almost like just these other hunks of metal that appear from time to time and try and wreck Nightshade. But it's, the, it's, it's just John Wagner's work on describing these characters and even some of the unlikable characters. I mean, obviously, there's a bully on board called Parsons who looks a bit like Joe Darkey as he's drawn by mm. Mike Weston. And yet his story is remarkable as well. And you get some of his character coming through. Um, yeah. It's really, I don't know, as I keep saying, it just put me right there with this bunch of blokes struggling to just survive and keep the thing going. Well, Parsons is an amazing character in the book, isn't he? He's kind of like, there's nothing kind of likable about the guy at all. He's a psychopath. He's a nutcase. He's, he's, we've all kind of come across people like that. You know, mm. if it were like, he'd be, you know, whatever today. But there's something, there's something about the book as well. It's the job, isn't it? It's that you just do the job. And that there is the thing about, you know, sacrifice the higher order. I think it's interesting as well. There's a, the, the, the role of the priest. There's a priest who comes mm. aboard, isn't there, in the middle of the film? And, and in most of these things, you would imagine, imagine in Charlie's War that there would be a kind of, you know, there would be an anti-clerical <laughs> take on that at some point. And while the priest kind of seems ambiguous at the beginning, he kind of imparts this kind of moral, you know, he departs the boat, doesn't he, at some yes. point? And he says, what you, the, I don't, I've always believed in, in pacifism, but what you're doing is good. That this is a kind of the, the the notion of the good war, the notion of the work that they're doing is good, is kind of strong through this, and there's the brutality of it. I mean, I think it's as, in some respects it's as brutal. It's not as brutal as Darkies Mob in terms of the kind of visceral kind of things that you see in it. There's, I mean, there's no people kind of crucified in bamboo or <laughs> whatever, yeah. but there's you know the harshness of the. I won't give away the thing about what happens to Parsons in the middle of the book, but there's a kind of lot, there's a little bit of narration at the end by Geordie in the present tense, when he was talking in the in the present day about what happened to him. And it's kind of chilling, but also kind of phenomenally kind of true as well. It's kind of, it, 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 there's no, there's no sugarcoating. There's nothing romantic about this at all. 
Yeah. There's no romanticism in the story. And that is, you know, and I think John as well said, if he'd have been, if he'd been old enough, he'd have joined the Navy. Right. And he'd have, and, and he'd have gone on fought in the war because he thought it was a, it's a, it was a good and just thing. So very much you kind of look at the priest there, sort of like it's the author. <laughs> yes. Passing judgment on them, which is not something I've ever read him do in other books. And there's also, there's the never going to make it to Brown character. And then later on, a character introduced called Tubby Grover, who gives yes. us an interesting reflection on... Um, cowardice. Yeah, cowardice, and whether people could cope with what was going on around them and how one yeah, yeah, character yeah. just finds the constant, the constant threat, constant fear or apprehension of danger just too much to cope with, which I have to say is probably where I'd be as well, you know, um, with what these people went through. You know, even that in itself, in a boys' war comic from the late seventies, seems remarkable. Yeah, well, it's like uh, Tubby. Go, well, you're dealing with. I mean, they do it in other. They do it in Charlie's War to some degree, don't they? The kind of the desert, the, no, the notion of desertion, and how that kind of plays out. But in this, it's different, isn't it? Because you're not dealing with the kind of the brutality of trench warfare and all this kind of stuff. It's a different kind of. Fear. It's like the, they're in a kind of they're all, those never going to make it. Brown always he writes a letter. He makes sure that every member of the crew's got a letter, isn't it? That yes. Send home to his mom if he ever dies, and they all say, "Oh, he's the luckiest man on the boat. He'll, 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 he'll be, he'll survive. You know, whatever happens." But he's kind of he's also sneaky as well. He's not like um, he's not just kind of a cow. He's not just kind of frightened. He's also sneaky and completely selfish. He's kind of like never going to make it. Thing is completely selfish hmm. and. There's a kind of feeling there that he's that is he an impediment to the crew, and not really, but he's but he, he certainly embodies a certain <laughs> trait that is less than pleasant. Tubby's he just can't handle it, can he? No. And that has a kind of um, that plays out in a very kind of I think that's quite that's an interesting little kind of so sort of like diversion in the story, and that occurs in the kind of final third of the book, really. Um, that they try to get him back, don't they? They try to, the, 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 collectively, they try to kind of... The group try to save him, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it, even that doesn't work. No. It's like, so it, it plays with the things in a very, there's no kind of neat conclusion. There's no kind of, you know, in, it'd be, well, about giving anything, there's not, really a, there's not really a happy ending, is there? There is there is no happy ending. There, there, and also you get the feeling, I think the thing that's great about the book is that you get the feeling that while this, the, the story is really important to the characters we're watching, they are part of a much bigger story that they have no real control over. All they can control is what they do within the boat. Going back to that thing about the factory, the, the thing about process, the thing about working with each other, you know, that, that that's it. That's all they've got. And if they don't have that, then they'd probably all be going crazy yeah. as well. But it's... Yeah, it's, so it's, so that, I think that's a really kind of the heroism is not the heroism of the you know shoving a you know pouring a bottle of water over your head and kind of running into battle with a machine gun is it? It's not that. It's the opposite of that. It's heroism on a kind of really kind of quiet, gentle, humane level. You could argue in a true sense. Yes. Maybe the hero, the heroes that do that are actually a bit unhinged. <laughs> well, yes. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so I think it's yeah, it's. Um, I was looking at the thing with Parsons. I do wonder if if there's a little residual thing in that character that plays out in the Barracuda in uh, um, Garth Ennis's Punisher run. Oh, right. Because okay. there's a, he looks a bit like him with the broken teeth. And, okay, he's an African-American character. 
Parsons is white, but the kind of shape of the guy, the shape of the character, Parsons is hard. But there's a line towards the end of the book where Parsons is talking about, his, he mentions something about his dad, which I think is one of the only bits of backstory you get. Hmm. And it's clearly, it's, and, it, and it says, it's one line and it opens up a whole world of abuse of why this character is the way he is. And I think there's, a, there's, an, there's an element of that in the final story with the Barracuda when he turns up in the Punisher Max. Is it Long Cold Dark? I don't know, I think that's the story. Where suddenly this monster is humanised. And I was reading that and that really, when I reread it, I didn't read it, didn't clock that the first time I read it, but reading it the second time, it kind of made a connection. So I don't know if that's just me reading too much into it or whether that would, Garth would say that that was an influence. But it, that's, that's what kind of struck me, that kind of, um, and also how much Garth has built on what John's done in yeah. terms of that kind of, absolutely. Not, and I don't just mean in the war stories, I think beyond that as well, you know, in the, in the other stuff, that Punisher run is a great, piece of work i think that's one of the finest pieces of american comics of the last 25 years that's truly fantastic as a piece of character writing hmm. which is where i think this is I, I would imagine this is where he kind of like why really sort of has locked onto this as a, as a as a great book sort of as time as time's gone on as well so yeah i think that's uh so there are five page stories black and white obviously um most of their time, HMS Nightshade are guarding North Atlantic convoys in yeah. the frozen waters or freezing waters where, you know, the water, the sea will kill you. Um, if you take your glove off and touch a railing, you'll freeze to the railing. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is, obviously, there's a section towards the end of the book where they're deployed to Sierra Leone for a while. How mm. well did you think that transfer of scene or change of scenery worked? I think it's... It- probably well it's less there's less danger in yes. that section isn't there I think you kind of move more into the they're in their they're in their summer whites aren't they yeah. <laughs> at that point so it feels like um, well the thing is the change of guards isn't it it would be because there's there's a change in the cast at this point as well you get an infusion of new characters and it takes on a more humorous bent I think um, I don't know if that was by design or whether that's as a response to kind of read whether you think this is something we need to kind of, it's too grim. We need to kind of have some more kind of variety in the strip. I think it works. I think, it, I think it works well because I think the characters are interesting. I think the kind of the crusher, the kind of who crushes the, the cockroaches. Yes. On the, <laughs> it, it becomes, it, it becomes, it becomes funnier. Definitely. And I think in some respects, that's quite a nice sort of welcome change of pace I do think it's well judged actually and I think what it does give the book overall is a much more picaresque kind of feel than as we said something that's really kind of plot driven I think the, the variation of the kind of setting is is good if you like kind of high you know the, the high seas kind of North Atlantic kind of mm. violence then maybe it's less less you think but I, I I think it works very well I thought the 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 bit where I felt it was less successful is that the end where they go off and they find a U-boat pen. Yes. Yeah, I felt that was that. That for me is the kind of for me is the weakest section because it feels just like a more of a generic war strip. Yeah. Which is not what a nightshade is. Yeah. So I I don't know. I I quite like that stuff. I know if 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 that's. Is it less successful? I suppose maybe some people would say that. I don't think that, that period is, but I think that little bit, the, where they go, was it in Norway? Are they in Norway? Around there? I have to check the book. Yeah. 
they're somewhere in there, Summer White. So, so I thought it was Freetown. No, they're in Freetown. Then, then that, then there's that bit where they find the U-boat. Oh, right, the U-boat mission. Yes, I don't. Yes, don't. I sorry. I think it's Scandinavia or something right. like that. There are at that point. I can't remember. I'll have a look. I'll have a look. Okay. But um, that's the bit for me that I, that's the weakest part of the book for me. That, that sounds feel, felt like the most generic war story uh, team on a mission sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. You could imagine that being a strip <laughs> <laughs> of its own. It's a. Uh... Um, I just mentioned a couple of John's influences that I know he talked about um, The Cruel Sea by Nicholas Montserrat and I think it's HMS Ulysses, which was Alistair MacLean's first book. Yes. And I think he had said, because I know you've been talking to him about it, he'd said that they were both very good and they were somewhat of an influence on HMS Nightshade. The one I was interested in was the the long-running Patrick O'Brien series of Aubrey Matron novels from the Napoleonic uh, Nelson's Navy days, but I, the, I know from him, I think you followed up with John, and he hasn't he read those since Nightshade, but hadn't read any of them before. I think. No, no, that's right. He said they he, uh, they were they were coming out. They were out, weren't they? Around the first the four, I think the first five novels were out by nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine from Patrick O'Brien. I've mentioned them before in the podcast because I'm a big fan of those novels. And that's what Master I, and Commander. That's Master and Commander, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what I what I thought was although they those novels deal more with the officers and the men below decks, but I thought if Captain Aubrey from Master and Commander had ended up on HMS Nightshade, he would recognise the sort of day to day running of a ship, of keeping a ship afloat, yeah. basically. You know, the, the the job. And that's what I felt about it. So but yeah, I'm just interested in John's uh, sort of influences in producing this remarkable piece. Yeah, so he says it was it was um, as you said the cruel sea, obviously I guess the moon, and the Alastair MacLean's HMS Ulysses, and then he said that there are there weren't any books about corvettes stories, but very little that was out there at that time. Although subsequently there are monsters written. A few, a book, three Corvettes, which which you, apparently the internet has just told him exists. So he's going to have a look at that. Right. So the the Corvette was, I think, the the thing that he kind of brought to it that kind of small, you know, scale ship. But the general kind of stuff. I mean, I can remember when he said that. I remember. I mean, seventy eight, even in the eight. I mean, the mid eighties when I read it, those things were still very prevalent in the culture. I mean, I can remember going to my granddad's and seeing the. Alistair McLean books on the shelf in, yeah. you know the paperbacks in the you know you get them in like the four paperbacks in a kind of a sleeve yes remember those they were up there and there was and I remember the Cruel Sea being on his shelf I remember him watching the Cruel Sea a lot so those things yeah were, def- were, were definitely there I mean I, I wonder were the, the Patrick O'Brien books a bit more literary Yes, I think so yeah and they were probably not really gaining the reputation that they would later gain, you know, for yeah. a while. So they probably weren't as well known. Yeah, no, so there's, so there was, if there's four or five then, he wrote them for a good 20 plus years, didn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, I think there's about 20 in the series. Yeah. Let's, let's turn you to the artwork for a moment to talk about Mike Weston. Uh, wow. You know, John's partner on Darkie's Mob. Dave yeah. Hunt, the editor, puts them very wisely back together again. John... Yeah famously 
leaves a lot of the work or, you know, leaves a lot of the art direction, as it were, to the artist. He doesn't give a great deal no. of direction. He lets them, he says, you know, why, why interfere with somebody who's got such a great imagination and talent like Mike Weston? What about Mike's work in HMS Nightshade? Well, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, it's um, you're talking about it. I mean, he's got draw ships, and yeah. <laughs> this is in the days before before you could use computers. You know, this is an analog process, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I think it's the, the only downside I think to the to the artwork in HMS Nightshade is it's not hand lettered. I mean, which is obviously a problem in all of the the battle strips. There's one page, isn't there, that's hand lettered? I don't know if you noticed it in the book, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a little amend- amendment. For whatever reason, there was a page cut out of the original serialization, which was then used when they reprinted it in the mid-'80s. And when they reprinted it in the mid-'80s, they'd all moved over to hand lettering. So this uh. page had to be lettered. So there's one page in there that is hand-lettered. And you can see how lovely it looks. Um but that's, I mean, that's a minor quibble. I'm not, that's not, not even really, that doesn't even really reflect on Mike's work at all. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a phenomenal piece of work. I mean, and, and, and not just is it, it's a phenomenal piece of character storytelling. I think that that's the thing that the characters don't all look the same. I mean, yeah. I think that's the, the one thing you'd obviously say in a black and white comic book, they're all in close proximity. They're not spread out. You're not looking at the landscapes generally. It is all about how you draw people and how you draw people where you can immediately look at it and say, that's Geordie, that's Smithy, that's Handsome John. Luckily, Handsome John gets an eye patch later on, so that immediately that gives us a bit Yeah, that helps. And Parsons. So the, the, the storytelling is is phenomenal. But, I mean, he's amazing. I mean, I think if you look... I mean, I I've, I've obviously remember reading this when it came out, but I read so much of his stuff as a kid, whether that was Tops, you know, Tops on Two Wheels in, in Tiger, about the motorbike rider who then becomes a Formula One driver for some reason later on. I mean, Drew, Computer Warrior, which I think John and Alan wrote for Eagle. Right. For years. I mean, I love that. I love that as a, as a child. So he kind of, his work on this is amazing and he's, he's one of the, you know, is a real kind of high point. I mean, along with Dark, he's, well, absolutely. And I think obviously the war strips are where he comes alive because there's a kind of lived experience, I think, there and a sense of, you know, there's a sense of weight to what he's drawing and a sense of, I, may, I wouldn't say worth, but there's certainly, I think he can bring, he's bringing more of himself to it, that kind of a real reality to it. But his, his work was so consistent. You know, you look at him, you look at the books like this and you think he looks he's like Neil Adams. You know, we kind of like talk about the realism that Neil Adams brings to kind of Batman in like the late 60s, early 70s. I don't see him, I don't see Mike Weston being much worse than that. He's, his work's phenomenal. Yeah. And you talk to anyone, I think you talk to any kind of comics artist working today, they would all say he's a, he's a master. He's a fa- fabulous, fabulous artist. I think, it's, I think it's a shame because I think that in the 80s, certainly with the success of 2000 AD, and I can remember this when I became, stopped being a kind of, you know, I was a, I read comics as a kid and I read them religiously. They were just part of your life. It's like breathing. It's like having 11s or whatever. And then when you become a comics fan, when I was probably about 12, 13, started going to conventions when I was about 13 at UCAC, 89 to 13, 14. And you start to see comics like Crisis. You start to see American comic books. You're seeing, you know, the the, the stuff that DC are doing. You're seeing the stuff that Marvel are doing. Bill Sienkiewicz, the British creators. There's very much a kind of like, the British comics, when, apart from 2000 AD, were never kind of seen as being part of that. 
it was almost like the British tradition was not something to be spoken of, really. We all kind of drank the Kool-Aid mm. from across the Atlantic. And I think that, I think over time, I think that's becoming less and less the case. I think we're kind of turning back and looking. And certainly I think since the the, uh, the Treasury of British Comics stuff started to be put out in a more coherent and, you know, just a more coherent fashion, the stuff that we haven't seen for a long time is now being looked at and reappraised. But I think he's one of those artists. I think he was forgotten about because of that. I mean, I think I think Joe Cochran was the same as well with Charlie's War. But you can't. Who, how many people are better than them? Mm. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, what were you going to you think about fifties? You know, American war comics. They're kind of beautifully drawn. Are they better drawn than this? I wouldn't say so. No. His works, his works are utterly phenomenal. I mean, obviously, there's a difference here because he doesn't ink everything, does he? The last two pages of of some of the strips are inked by Ron Tyner, I understand. Yes. Because it was it was obviously it was a big ask for him to do the five pages a week. And I think when you notice some of the last yeah. two pages are not as good as the first three pages of the script of the strip. Well the ink the inks are kind of thicker, aren't they? There's yes. a sort of there's less detail, I think, is the is what's what's there. Yeah. So that would be the one thing that, that would also make you think how much was he putting into it to get it yeah. done. Because, I, I mean, it's just a huge, huge amount. I don't know what his weekly output would have been. It, it varies, doesn't it? Some of these some of these are five, but a lot of them are four pages. Right. Some of them are three as well. I think towards the end, there's a few that are three pages. So it kind of it, it varies a little bit. And that probably would explain as well whether they chop the page out. And there's, there was Obviously, a... There was a panel that was missed out, I noticed as well, that was mm. then reprinted, yeah. Um, but his work on, like, you know, he, he does it all. He does the ships, he does the other ships, he does the aircraft that are coming in to attack the convoys, but he also does the characters, both in close-up... Completely. ..and then also in sort of, like, you know, their job, doing the ship. And he just... It just it's masterful throughout... Oh yeah, you know his perspective, the way he composes pages. I saw Rob Williams on Twitter tweeting about it. You know how much research, how much character, how much action there was in each page. Um, mm. Again, this might be, I think, my favourite Mike Weston. It's absolutely. Well, I like it. I certainly like it more than Darkies Mob. I think it's it's got more variety to it, and in a way, the black and white suits it more. I would say than maybe Darkies Mob. Right. Yeah. Because you're in a kind of lush vegetation, you know, this site. Maybe you miss something with the black and white. You miss something. I think you miss something with the heat with it being in black and white in Darkies Mob, which is maybe me being a bit daft about that. But I don't know. I think there's something very, this. I think it fits the austerity of the story in HMS Nightshade as well. Yeah. We're in, we're in giant kind of industrial creations, you know, that we're in, the hu- the humanity against the kind of inhumanity of the kind of scale of the ships and the types of battles that are going on is kind of that's why I think it's brilliant is he gets the juxtapositions of those kind of fa- the faces you know those little sort of inset panels of the faces that are on every kind of opening page yeah you now it really kind of grounds the story because um, yeah I mean he, he, you're right he gets but he gets all of it there's there's none of it there's not a drip sort of drop stitch throughout it's it, it it's all of a piece. I think that's what struck me as a kid reading it all the way through. Is it? it, it it's a coherent piece. 
it has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. And also the, the creative team are on it all the way through. It's not the way that you would say Johnny Red, which has got two or three different artists on it. Um, and you kind of notice that as a kid. Hmm. It's why I've always, why I think Strontium Dog has got that strong character in a way that maybe Dread, it's more it's more diluted with Dread because he's always been kind of drawn by loads of different people and written by other people as well. But those things, I, I think that this one is really, really striking in that respect. I suppose Charlie's War, Charlie's War is the other one that kind of has the same kind of sense of cohesion to it. Um, but that's, yeah, I think that's what it is. It feels very holistic of a piece. It's, it's very much a perfect kind of mixture of writer, artist and subject. And I think you say you'd spoken to Pete Weston, hadn't you? Yeah, his Mike's son, Peter Weston, is on Facebook and he's an artist in his own right. And I spoke to him about a little bit about his father's work. Grandfather Geordie Dunn is, of course, the appearance of him is based on Mike himself. Right, okay. Uh, so the grandfather <laughs> looks like Mike himself. Mike Weston served in the war in, in the, I think he was in the artillery and the engineers, and then they got him onto cartography because obviously of his artistic talents. So he knew, you know, he knew some, certainly what, um, what he was talking about. Mm. And I think Peter Weston also said that it was it was Mike Weston and Dave Hunt who were doing lots of research and finding clippings right. and pictures and so on. Yeah, because it feels spot on in terms of the depiction of the ships and the aircraft. What what really strikes you with it is how much they care. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing that comes off the page. Is this, and you know they can you know we can talk about what the, the reception of the book. I think regardless of what the recept the contemporary reception of the book was or how they perceive that to be, when you step back from it, and this is a story that was finished forty. 50, how long ago is it now? 40 years ago, I guess, yeah. 40 years ago, yeah. So they finished it in 80. 42 years ago, the work is inarguable. What they did then is inarguable. You know, it, it stands up and it stands up, you know, better than, I think, to be honest, it stands up better than some of the more lauded strips. Yes. Some of the names, I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but I, I think it I think it does just in terms of the I think it really feels like a breakthrough for John as well in terms of the writing. And I asked him that, and he, he said that the, the, to do a gentler kind of story was a sort of, was the idea. And also the fact that there hadn't been a kind of successful naval strip. Yeah. But I think you can see a lot of what John would go on to do with Dread in the late 80s. I think there's a lot of what you would see in things like America later on. I think there's a lot of Button Man you can see in it. And I would say maybe a history of violence, maybe in the way that it's less plot driven, there's a kind of sense of letting the pace and the atmosphere and the mood and everything kind of work through. And certainly I think if, the, if you look at the later Johnny Alphas, have you ever read that one, um, which I think is fantastic? It's one of the best. Is one is that uh, traitor to his kind? Yeah, that has got the end. The end of that is like the end of HMS Nightshade. It's kind of it's like the end of say No Country for Old Men or something yes. like that. It's got that sort of sense of it's just phenomenal. It's just fantastic. So there's so so it's very much I think um, a, a key work in the way he kind of develops as a writer because you wouldn't have those later works if he hadn't done this. And this is very early in his career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And yeah, I mean, you see it in, I think you can see it kind of rear it again in things like the last American and stuff like that. 
which in a way is a war comic, isn't it? I mean, it's okay, it's a post-apocalyptic, yeah. but it feels like a battle strip in a way. It's got that same kind of feel to it, more of a battle strip than a 2000 AD strip. So it's fantastic. HMS Nightshade, not talked about enough, uh, no. probably, but certainly stands up as, uh, you know, I'm going to say it's the best thing I've read from Battle so far. Um, wow, that's, that's, that's high praise. Yes. Well, it, I mean, it is, isn't it? I mean, it's just so terrific. The characters are so wonderful. And as I say, I keep feeling like I'm there with them, um, but also wondering how on earth it would be to be in those sort of situations. Um, it does, it finishes, you know, it sort of, the the prophecy of the first page of the first strip is fulfilled at the end of a year. Um, mm. We know from John and Dave Hunt that it wasn't really getting the uh, the readers' votes that much. Yeah. Um, and John, I think, sort of decided just to wrap it up quickly. Although in his discussions with you, because you shared the emails, he. Um, he he now wishes he actually had given it a longer run. Yeah, no, he said that he they he lost confidence in it. Is what he said, which is kind of heartening to hear. <laughs> if John can lose confidence in it, in something as great as this, we can we've all we all feel the same. Yeah, no, he said that he felt that it was never the it was never the it was never at the top of the readers' poll. It was never at the bottom. It was always somewhere in the middle, and that. He drew, he drew it to a close because, as he said, he lost confidence in it and he thinks he should have let it run for longer and could have, and I think he could have done. But I think in some respects it's it's perfect as it is. You know, it, it's perfectly imperfect. There are some things that are perfectly imperfect and and I think this is one of them. It's that there's a, there's a sense as well, you know, I think the end of this is kind of like, is it's sort of predestined by that first page, as you said. And there's a time jump, isn't there, towards the end of the, yes. the thing? We go from 1943, and then obviously they've decided at some point to, we're going to do, wrap it up in a couple of episodes. But in a way, I think that that is fine because I think, in in a sense, it's not a plot-driven story. We have to reach that conclusion. You know, are we allowed to talk about spoilers? Or, or yeah, absolutely. The, the boat sinks, doesn't yes. it? I mean, that's the that's, the, that's what we see on page one, that the boat is at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is on page one, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so we know that that's what we're heading towards. And so the inevitability of that is kind of, I think, great. It does, it reminds me, it actually it does really remind me at the end of that, that speech at the end of No Country for Old Men. Mm. <laughs> right, that, that Tommy Lee Jones has in the movie and then is the same in the book, you know, that kind of like there's a, it's got that kind of tone to it and it's kind of perfect for that because this isn't a story about great revelations. It isn't a story about great victories. It's like, the, it says you lived hard you, and you expected to die hard, isn't it? Is that's yeah. the, that's like the closing line of the, the book. And it's, 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 it's savage, but I, I can remember reading that as I'm so I was what I was 10 when when I would have read it and that the fact that it ended like that was so kind of like oh because most of the other strips they kind of ended in a way that was a bit sort of rah-rah you know there was a kind of I got Darkies Mob is I, one of the things about Darkies Mob that's great is the ending I think of Darkies Mob I think it's that's where it's why it's so such a good strip 
the revelation and then the kind of the way that plays out in those last few episodes. I just think this, yeah, this one, it, you'd feel cheated if you kind of had something sort of tacked on. You know, there was a great moment. You know, they all went off to, I don't know, went to Italy for or Greece. You know, right. had a, they're at the end of the war. I think that's where my granddad was at the end of the war. But I think it's true as well because to go back to my grandfather, my granddad was in Greece at the end of the war. And on the very last day of the war, war was declared. Well, peace was declared. A friend of his went off the ship went down a back, was, went off, you know, into the town and was stabbed to death in a back alley. So that I think that that's a truer ending than, you know, any great revelation is yeah. that the war, the war ends, but, you know, the scars linger, you know, the world carries on, you know, this is the, there's always some, there's always some a bitter part to the pill, you know, there's, 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 you can't get away from that. Yeah. And I think as well, the thing that you see in that final page as well is that this is an old man who's, there's an old, there's a couple, there's a great bit in it where two old ladies are looking out the window and they say, he's just a big kid. And there's an element of that in the way he's talking to his grandson. And there's an element of that as well at the end when he's talking about his friends, you know, it's kind of the the trauma of the war has not left this character. I think you see that in his face on the last page as well, don't you? Yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so it is fantastic. I'm going to ask you in a moment about Mike Weston's Grail pages for you. But before then, any particular favourite moments, episodes, or characters from the book? Oh, how where do you start? Um, yeah. <laughs> my favourite. Yeah, I know it's so it's so many. Um, there's loads of moments. There's moments that were that are in when I went back and reread it. And actually, you mentioned Rob earlier on. I'm pretty sure Rob might have been the reason I ended up finally biting the bullet and buying it because he'd mentioned that he'd read it and he thought it was magnificent. And it was like, yeah, well, I've always thought that I'm going to go back. I am going to go back and read it. Um, and he's absolutely right. There's things like the hand freezing on the rail when they're in the Arctic. My granddad remember telling me about that. People taking their gloves off and you know, yeah. all the skin coming, coming off. And the Canary Girls, because the girl, you know, when Smithy marries a girl from in Liverpool, the Fos, is it the Phosphor? Yes. My nan, my granddad's wife, who's still with us. She's 1999 this year. She worked in the Woolwich Arsenal. So one of the rare bits of a comic where I could ask my nan, (laughs) is this true about girls going yellow? And she said, yes, they did, if they worked over there on that. So those little bits of detail always stick in the memory. In terms of characters, always got to be Parsons. You know, that kind of section in the middle of building up to the conclusion of that whole story, that whole arc for me is, is just fantastic. The way he says, you know, he's, he's, he bullies Titch all the way through and then Titch sort of dies and then he says, but not me mate Titch. You know, it's like as he's locked in the munitions store in the armory. That was great. I think the whole thing, never going to make it brown and the kind of the, the cruel Wagner-esque kind of punchline to that is, yes. <laughs> is particularly good. I mean, that's where we see another element of John come through. Yeah. <laughs> a touch of John's um, signature dark humour comes through. Yes, yeah, yes, very much so. So those, I think those two maybe, um, all the stuff about the, yeah, when he's kind of, um, when he gets banged up on the on the boat with Parsons. Yeah, that, I, think those, I think those are my favourite. But I really love the, bo- I, like the I quite like the comedy boxing <laughs> contest. At the, the boxing match towards the end, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of very um, 
And if it was a bit, ca- I love that. I love that. There's an element. It was on over Christmas. A bit of carry on abroad about it. Right. No, there was. <laughs> it just felt a bit like that. Reminded what me. laughs? Yeah. Oh yes. So yeah, I'd say, but those, I'd say those two characters. I think that and the those little moments, but that those two chunks of the story for me always resonate and and because they get paid off so well i think that's the thing that's that's good and i think the end i think the 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 very final couple of pages are just a master class in economy yeah yeah and and the way to do the landing if you're going to end a story you got to end it you know it's like i say this is someone who's struggling to do this at the moment What about Mike Weston's artwork, some of which does survive um, and is in collections, yeah. I know. What what would your grail pages be from the book? Well, I, I think, I mean, it's... it's. I would say you've got the same book as me there. Yes. I'd say 100, page 128, 129, the two pages of that episode with Parsons, the first two. I, would, I mean, I would even go down to, the, even though it's inked by Ron Tyner, I'd say page 131 there as well, where Parsons is in the reaching his conclusion right um those three but those, I, I think the first page were one two eight which is the ship's on fire you see a close-up of parsons and then he kind of his hands kind of burnt on the valve i'd sort of say that because it's not an obvious it's not an obvious page in terms of spectacle you know it's like that kind of thing of oh it's an amazing, it's an amazing it, but it's beautiful it's the storytelling is perfect it's a five panel page so there's kind of um have you got the page? Yeah, I have. I've got them here in front of me, yes. Under one two eight. I think one two eight would be the one. I think right. that would that would be one page. If I was just I just think that's a beautifully done, it's beautifully balanced from the, the, the top, the major image and then the inset and then the, the storytelling along the bottom, I just think is spot on. I think you've got the three or even four sort of peak elements there. You've got the ship. You've got one of yep. Mike Weston's sort of signature close-ups of Parsons' face, and then you've got his action in the bottom of the pan of the page. Plus, you've got the logo on there as well. It's yep. yeah, yeah, lovely composition. It's beautifully done. Yeah, I mean, the first page of the fir- of the very first page is the one you could pick as well. It's beautiful. So, the, um... if we talk about the very first page of the strip which sort of lays out the destiny of HMS Nightshade while also giving us this great image of it sort of ploughing through the waves while Stuka bombers pierce the sky above them. Um, Because, again, uh, John's very fond of this page, and I know he's asked Dan Cornwell to colour it, and he's hoping that he might have his print to sell. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I think I've, I may have seen it. I can't, can't, can't possibly comment. Can't possibly comment. <laughs> I don't think um, we can share that image. But yes, I mean the no, first page I think, is glorious. I think, yeah, I think John's gonna. I think if John's ever at conventions again, then he'd be selling them at the, at the thing. But yes, the first page is beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely f- fantastic, and I would choose those two. I mean, I would say page at that page at the beginning of that page of Parsons for me would be the two. Grail pages, they kind of sum up everything about the, the 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 story. You get a sense of the story and the tone as well from that first page because it's not it, – they're kind of like – in a way, there's it's tableau, isn't it? But it's – there's no characters involved there, but you get a feeling of the, the story, the, the mood of the story. And then I think that later page, you kind of get a sense of what the story's about. You know? Yeah. That's, that's absolutely there. 
but it's yes yeah, they're both beautiful pages i mean the work is phenomenal i mean you you know there are things you go back to when you're when you're an adult that you loved as a child and you think oh <laughs> oh what was i thinking yeah taste is such a <laughs> such a fluid and evolving thing but when you go but this is like um i'll tell you what there's another it's like oh, i remember as a when i was in my probably about 10 years ago when dot two came back i always remembered it and it would be around this time actually it was when the, the caves of androzani i remember watching that as a nine-year-old eight or nine-year-old and thinking this is fantastic this is the best thing i've ever, ever seen and there are many things you go back to <laughs> that don't live up. And I got the DVD of that, and I watched the case of Andrew's Army, and it's still great. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's still fantastic. And and this is this is there with that. Right. Still as good as that, and it is fantastic. Still as good. So, so I will post images of pages one, pages one twenty eight and one twenty nine from this book when this episode comes out, so people can see your Grail pages and they become yours. Yeah. Um, if I turn you to page 32 of the book, this will be mine. This is also a title page. And again, it does that. It does the signature things. It's got the ships. It's got a close-up of uh, Grandad telling the story. It's got HMS Nightshade bravely sort of surmounting the waves and a bit of action of the lads in their sort of sou'westers fighting against the uh, the... The wind and the and then and the sea. So and also it's got the title logo, which I love as well, HMS Nightshade. So that's my page. Beautiful. He looks also a bit like uh, John Mills's Quatermass. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it does actually. Yes, now you say that. The, the, yeah. yeah, excellent. Are there many of those where he's in his profile? That's kind of an unusual shot as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's uh, no, that's a great page. That's brilliant. Beautiful. And so this is uh, Garth Ennis Presents Battle Classics. There's two volumes of it. This volume contains HMS Nightshade. It also contains The General Dies at Dawn by Alan Hebden and uh, John Cooper. And there's three short single issue, I think, or single one-shot stories illustrated by Cam Kennedy at the back of the book as well. Yeah, the last one, the short story at the end, I think it's Private Loser. Private Loser, yes. It's fantastic, which is written by Dave Hunt, right, and, and drawn, I think, by Cam Kennedy, and it's a brilliant short story, Re- really fantastic. The General Dies at Dawn is a very good strip as well. So this is a, all in all, this is a very, very good collection of of stuff from Battle. That's the less, I, I guess, the lesser known stuff, and yet, kind of the hit rate in this volume is incredibly high. It's really, really good. So. Um, it's uh, well worth your time and investment if you can still get hold of it. I think yeah. they're, I think they're still they're still out there. Nineteen pounds ninety nine. Um, go to bookshop.org and you should be able to find it. You also get a forward and an afterward by Garth Ennis, plus an introduction to each of the stories by Garth as well. Yeah, yeah. So you know it's well worth it. It's hardback. Obviously now Rebellion own it, and we'll see what they continue to do with the Treasury and putting out some of this battle and action stuff. Um, we've got the Sarge oh. coming up this year, I think, haven't we, from yes. Jerry Finley Day? Yes. There's, um, yeah, there's not, has there been much, there hasn't been much since Charlie's War, the big paperbacks, is no. there, from battle, I don't think. And it depends would they do them as black and white, would they do them as, um, would they re-letter them? I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, 
what have they done with the, the I've got the one-eyed jack book here. I think that's done in the that what they didn't alter. They didn't that, did re-letter they? that, but they did re-letter the first volume of Charlie's War, I think, didn't they? They did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was hand letter. They did move to the hand lettering for that. And I think that was a that is was a good thing. That was so hopefully if they do that, that would be great. Um but yeah, so obviously they're starting to to dip into the kind of battle archive. Um, but I think Garth is right. I think it's, um, I mean, even more than action, I think battle is the kind of the creative foundation stone for 2000 AD. I mean, I, I, there's, there's kind of more of battle in 2000 AD than, than action in some respects. And certainly in terms of the creation of characters that lingered for a very long time. I mean, Johnny Red ran for what, 10 years, didn't it? And yes, it did. Yes. Yeah, so and Charlie's War ran for a very long time. You know, they're they're not strips that were you know came and went really quickly. They're strips that really kind of and made their impact and sort of embedded themselves into the kind of the the, the, the comic book culture. So I think I guess the the the, the thing that that stands out the most from action is Hookjaw. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and we're in a week where that that battle action hardcover written by Garth has just been announced. So yeah. Um, That'll be that's interesting that that's I mean obviously they've done the specials, haven't they, of battle in the last two years? Ago. Yeah. So they've obviously doing things and got plans for them. I think this would make a great I mean the budget would be huge, but of all the strips, I think HMS Nightshade would make a great TV show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh it is for some reason an underappreciated classic from this time, isn't it? Very much so. Hopefully that will change. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody's not read it yet, please do go out and get a copy because it is just splendid. One of absolutely one of the best things I've read from this period. Yeah, it's really great. James, thank you so much for picking it. Uh, it was a delight to read this one. Um, let's do guest projects. You still, as we as we record, uh, Diamond Dogs with Warren Police is still going in the magazine. Yeah, I think the first one. I don't. I think there's a new issue out next week. Yeah. We're doing this on the sort of 11th, aren't we, of January? So I think next week is the next issue of the Meg. That the so the first issue episode started just before Christmas. This one is episode two. There are five to go after that, so it's a seven part one, which is the final book. Right. So we've done the whole Warren and I and Simon Bolan on letters have done the whole thing. So that's uh com- that's completed, and it comes to a. Conclusion: We have lots of Armitage in this this final book. He he's a he's a kind of a bigger character in this final story. I wanted to kind of uh, flex that muscle before uh, before we finished it off. I've always had a soft spot for Armitage, so I was uh, very pleased that, that we got the chance to kind of use him. But hopefully, people will be pleased with the way we use him. It's not Armitage; it's Diamond Dogs. So he's kind of um, then he fills the role of the character that was there in the first two books who kind right. of met his untimely end uh, there. So I'm quite pleased with that. I'm pleased with the way it's finished. It's done. It's all, it's actually all done. So it's um, Warren is a machine. <laughs> <laughs> and we worked, we worked a lot of this was all done during lo- during the lockdown. I mean, it was quite lucky that we had, I think we were doing the second book, which had been commissioned. We started that during lockdown and I was finishing and I got the got in the third book outline and had that approved when that kind of was going on. So we kind of were, I was able to do the whole thing kind of throughout, and Warren did the same. So we finished it last end of last year. So probably around November time, I think we did the, the, the final episode was done. So 
it's all there waiting to done. A little bit of polishing for the lettering, but it's all there. I'm pleased with how that's finished. So there's that. And then Skip Tracer reached an ending last year and there's a digital collection coming out in May, I think. Well, uh, Skip Tracer actually hasn't reached an ending. Oh, right. in the end of the moment. I am 10 episodes into the final book. Oh, okay. The moment. So book seven is the end called Valhalla. Right. There's a little spoiler for you, anyone who cares. But we've, I think we're, I'm trying to think, that's due to run at some point, I think in April, I think, roughly like that. In right. April. Um, so it will be running as the first, as the collection. The first, I think it's the first two. Right. Actually been told. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Legion and it says it's got Paul Marshall on it. So I assume it's Paul and Colin McNeil. Colin as well, yes. Yeah, so I assume that that's the, that's the first one. It's 96 pages, so it must be the first two books. Oh, right, um, okay. So we're fin- I'm finishing this, the last one off now. So I've just had the episode 10 was given the, the thumbs up yesterday. So I've got two more to write and then we're, then it sinks off into the distance, you know, with uh, all these other strips that will live in the archive. So, but I was really surprised it got, it, it, I, no one had told me. The first right. time I heard that the book was coming out was when I saw the listings for the <laughs> collections in 2022. So, but um, yeah, that was, that's a nice surprise. So that'll be coming out as the, the final book is running. Hopefully they'll do, They'll collect the other books. It's very, it's nice that they've done it, that it's not, it's gone straight to a digital collection. Hmm. I think they can make some money out of it <laughs> rather than not. So, which is good. And uh, hopefully, they'll do, they'll, there will be at some point a kind of physical collection of that. That's what I'd like to yeah. see, obviously. Um, and I do think, I have to say that I think it, when it's read as a collection or as a completed thing, one would hope you would see what that there was a plan. <laughs> right. So that's sort of been, I've been, work, I mean, it's interesting. I've been writing it this for four years now. Right. It's the longest I've ever worked on anything. So I think 2017, I started writing it and it came out in 2018. So I've been working on it for five years. And I would say probably from the second book, I knew what the ending was. Right. So I've been, so it's been interesting to do that over a, extended period of time and and I've had the opportunity to do it because I know some you know series you know some get two or three and that's it they're gone um so to do it over a, a, I don't know how long it would be at the end probably you're talking five six hundred pages or something like that is good and I'm very pleased with the last I'm very pleased with what we've done in the last part of it I think some of Paul's work on it is the best he's done definitely I, mean, I was talking to Dylan about Dylan Teague about it who's colouring it at the moment and it's it's really really good really good um, and so he's been great to uh, work with on that and that's and we've kind of mainly had the same people on it all the way through we've had a we had Ali Deville lettered a couple of episodes of a series I think one maybe one series and she and but Simon's lettered most of it and then Paul's done it all apart from the book that Colin, Colin McNeil did, yeah. Yeah, um, and Dylan's coloured all of it bar the third, half of the third book or two-thirds of the third book because he had a job in France that he was doing, which he's not doing. So he's done the rest of it. So that's been... It, we've had a kind of consistency of team, which has been good. Yeah, and we've sort of tried to do the thing which you don't... I suppose some people have done it before, try to age the character through the stories. Yes. So we start off with him... 
very young in the first kind of book. And by, by the time we get to the last book, there's a, there's a significant time jump by the time we get to the, the last one. So we've got a character kind of going through, you know, a period of time. He starts off on his own. By the end of it, he's got a child. You know, he's all that plays to sort of plays out. So that's been really that's been really interesting to do and very enjoyable to do. And um, and I think we're ending it at the right time. I do think books, you know, series can go on for too long, and that it's a good thing to kind of when you haven't got anything else, you could you could do just another story. Yeah, you could you know. But that isn't necessarily good. There are a lot of strips where that's, <laughs> that's the case, maybe. But I, I'm, I'm, I've got to tell the story that I wanted to tell right from the start, so I can't... I, I mean, I'm really kind of thankful for that. And um, and it's in, you know, it's to, to, to have written a strip over a number of years for 2000 AD was always an ambition, and that's something I've done. So I was really kind of... Uh, to do that and to do Diamond, I was I'm very pleased with Diamond Dogs as well. How that's turned out, it's a very different story. It's a very different strip. Um, but to have done it all, Warren, that I mean, that was that's a real kind of pinch yourself moment. I remember reading True Faith, <laughs> yeah, back in the day in Crisis, and and just like, ah, oh, great, Warren's work is amazing. And just to be able to work with Warren when I did Doctor Who, I was like, Warren's drawing Doctor Who. Wow, he's drawing one of my scripts, and to then suggest him for diamond dogs and this to then do it over a period this period of time was great and then the fact he was doing full art and everything was, was wonderful the interesting thing is i've never met warren and i've never met paul right <laughs> okay i've never met colin so we do it you know it's very it, it, because of email now we're very much it's we're almost back to what it was like in the 60s and 70s yeah <laughs> so never never sat in a room with any of these people but you know it's uh the it's it's been great, and the, the quality of artist is is superb. I mean, it's the the what the the consistency of the work across the board is great, and yeah, been very been very very fortunate. And sense. any writing or film projects coming up that you can tell us about? Well, I've got well, I've actually got a couple of more things coming from two thousand. I'm doing another story for the regened right. I'm doing a. I've got I'm doing another scooter and drink story. I did that for the last one. I'm doing another one, and that's collected. Those because those are getting collected up for the book as market. they go along. Yeah, yeah. So there's so that's out this year. So this summer, next summer, I can't remember as a collection. I'm doing a second strip for that, and I've just done a, a cadet dread as well. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, this year, so I've never, I've never written dread before. So that was great. That was good fun. That'll be out this year, I suppose. At some yeah. point, film wise, I've I wrote a film a script last year. Yeah. For a short that I wanted to make, which obviously <laughs> the last two years have not really been conducive to uh, sure. making films without budgets. So that's very, well, very low budget. So it's I'm still I'd like to do that at some point this year if that's possible. But we'll see. I've, there's a feature script I wrote ages ago, which is supposedly which has been kind of optioned, which I'm they're trying to get the money to make at the moment. Which I w- watch this space um, for that. But you know the, these things are. <laughs> <laughs> when people are trying to raise the money, that's when you kind of go away and say, come back in five years. It may, it may happen, may not, we'll see. May, but no, that's, I mean, that's the, the, the film I want to make is this, this short. I mean, I had a f- the film that I, I had a couple of my films were in um, Elim Film Festival last year. I won a prize for one of them. And then I think the other one was got an honourable mention. So that was quite fun. But I want to do another, I want to sort of, work with the people I worked with before on my last film and do this this one uh, the one that I've written 
But like any of everyone, I, you just don't know what's going to happen. It's very hard to predict. It's hard to make. It's hard to make any kind of real plans. I mean, I think that's the main thing, you know. But I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll see. I mean, I've got other stuff that's sort of bubbling away, and you sort of the thing of being a freelancer is you never know which project is going to kind of happen and which isn't. So yeah. it's um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's I, I wonder what how the the last two years are going to play out in the longer run. Yeah, sure. Industries. I see. I still think we're things are not um, as they will be in the long term future. Yeah, we're still in the kind of limbo. To we are. Again. We are still in limbo. January twenty two. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, is, have you? You haven't been to conventions at, at all? Have... I've been to a couple at the end of last year, yes. And then there's Lawless. Uh, I went to Thought Bubble, and then there's Lawless in May of this year, yeah, which hopefully will take place and all be safe and well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Thought Bubble were lucky that they did it early. <laughs> yeah, they got in early, yes. They just yeah. got in a window. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully we will at some point get out of this pandemic and you will be in a room with those artists and you will get your your next film made. Yeah, well, that'll be, that'll be good. I mean, but it's, but can't, I mean, to be honest, I've been very, very lucky during this whole kind of period is that the minute that it kind of all happened, I had an enormous amount of work that was commissioned to work through and that's been, you know, that's got a lot of other people have not been so fortunate. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, you can't really I mean in the freelance business you kind of that's what you need at the best of time but this is the, in in the way that the, the last two years has impacted on I was listening to Marcus Hearn you know the editor of Doctor Who magazine yeah um, talking about on a podcast recently and um, I mean they lost you know an enormous amount of their you know, footfall through WH Smiths and, you know, the impact on magazine. I mean, how many magazines have survived the, yeah. the last two years? Q Magazine went, didn't it? I mean, there are other mags that have gone. You know, we're, we're to, be, to be working for 2000 AD in a period where it, of um, of instability and that be very stable is not something to be dismissive of. And, yeah. you know, so whatever happens, I'm very fortunate in the last couple of years and, and I'm very lucky that I can do other things as well. And it's great, as you say, that Rebellion and the Treasury of British Comics are still going and stable. Totally. And yeah, uh, long may it continue. Long may it continue. Well, thank Beyond you. For, thank you for introducing me to HMS Nightshade, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for giving up your time to talk about it. Perfect. I loved it. Much appreciated. It's a, it's a great, great book. It's a gem. Absolute gem. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. To find out all the details, including links to James's projects, go to megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2080 forums, or email me at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch uh, with comments, suggestions, or a book that you'd like to come and talk about. And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me.